Good morning. Good morning. morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, you know the uh, circumstances and times that we're living in, and you know our need for your presence and your guidance and your wisdom and your your direction and your protection. And we just pray that your uh, spirit and agencies will uh, be poured out on all those who have hearts to seek you and to follow your purposes in this world. We ask that the that you will give us some wisdom as we study today. And I ask that your spirit will go out and be with all of uh, our friends and family around the world that are uh, tuning in and seeking to fulfill your purposes, and you will enlighten and empower them. And I pray your will will be done on the uh, events that are transpiring on this planet right now, to turn hearts and minds to you, to ask the big question, and people will seek you for their life, and that we can be witnesses at this time in history. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And a couple of announcements. Uh, if you haven't been to our website recently, we encourage you to go to our website and you will find uh, new blogs. There's several up over the last few weeks regarding uh, viruses and what they are and uh, steps you can take to improve your immune system and viruses and end time lessons. Uh, there are the reasonettes that go up every week. And then um, we have just uh, put on our website free for streaming the Journal of the Watcher video. So if you'd like to watch the video of the Journal of the Watcher, you can stream that from our website now. We're excited to tell you about that. As you can tell, our class is still not meeting uh, together because of the coronavirus uh, social distancing recommendations and restrictions. We will continue to broadcast our class each week, and we will announce when we can meet together and where we will meet together once we are permitted to do so and it's safe to do so again. I want to say personally to all of our class members, I miss you guys and I miss seeing you and meeting with you and and visiting with you. And I just hope you all are well and you stay socially connected even while you're socially distancing. I want to remind everybody of the Power of Love training and equipping course, which is on our website. All the videos are there. The audios are there. You can download them from our website just by clicking the link at, um, beneath the video. And you can download the MP3 or the MP4 or the PowerPoint slides and also the syllabus. And we encourage you to utilize those and, and maybe have an online group while watch it and get together and discuss and, uh, the questions at the end of each section. Let's go ahead and uh, get into our lesson today. We are doing lesson three in our study guide, How to Interpret Scripture, and the title is Jesus and the Apostles' View of the Bible. In our first paragraph in the Sabbath lesson, says the following. Unfortunately, in this postmodern age, the Bible has been largely inter- reinterpreted through the lens of a philosophy that questions both its inspiration and its authority. In fact, the Bible is seen as merely an the ideas of human beings living in a relatively primitive culture who couldn't possibly understand the world as we do today. At the same time, the supernatural element has been either downplayed or even removed from the picture, turning the Bible into a document that, instead of being God's view of humanity, has become humanity's view of God. And the result is that, for many, the Bible has become largely irrelevant in the age of Darwinian thinking and modern philosophy. You know, as I read this, I, I never thought of the Bible as God's view of humanity. If we consider that, that's what the Bible is. Here, let's read the Bible and find out what God thinks of us. What does God think of humanity? If you were to go out and just ask the average person on the street, the Bible reveals what God thinks of us, his, 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 his view of us. What do you think the average person would say? Might they say, well, he thinks we're bad, we're sinners, we're worms, we deserve punishing? Or would he say, 
Well, we're beings that he loves with an infinite love that are currently sick and dying, and, and he loves us so much that he actually died to save us. That, that's what he thinks of us. That's how he views us. It is a common view, I will say, in scientific circles that the Bible is viewed as merely the human view of God. In other words, we create God in our own minds, and the Bible is the, the God that we've constructed, described by people who believe in God. That, that's a common view today. And so the authors are correct in pointing that out to us. But is are the only options, the Bible is God's view of us, or the Bible is our view of God? I actually take a different view, that the Bible is God's revelation of reality to us. That's what the Bible is. God is revealing reality to us. Thus, the Bible reveals the truth about God. The Bible reveals the truth about sin. The Bible reveals the truth about sin's origin and Satan. The Bible reveals the truth about God's methods and the plan of salvation. And in the context, and all of that context, then the Bible does reveal that God loves us and has intervened to save us. So it does reveal his view of our condition and his love for us. As you think about the view that you get from the Bible, does the law lens one holds? before reading Scripture, have an impact on the conclusions we draw. Do some teach that God's view of humanity is that we are under legal condemnation and thus under God's death penalty? Well, I think we all know it does. In the design law view, however, we know that the Bible teaches humanity has a condition which is terminal, and God loves us so much he sent his Son to provide cure and remedy for all who will trust him. Sunday's lesson... The lesson focuses on Jesus' temptation in the wilderness when Satan tempted Jesus. The first paragraph reads, excuse me, the second paragraph uh, reads, make sure I'm getting the right paragraph that I want to read, yes. When tempted by appetite, Jesus responds, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus points back to the living word and its ultimate divine source. In this way, he affirms the authority of Scripture. When tempted with the world's kingdoms and glory, Jesus responds, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. First question, you know, it started out, When Jesus was tempted, when tempted by appetite, Jesus responded. Was Jesus tempted by appetite? Or was appetite the physical medium through which Jesus' temptation was introduced. For instance, if Jesus ever found himself walking along a a path and found himself hungry and saw a fig tree and went up to a fig tree to get some food to satisfy his appetite, would that have been sinful? No, it's not sinful to be hungry, and it's not sinful to seek food for your hunger. That is not sinful. So let's be clear, this is not what the temptation was about. The temptation was to doubt God and to act in self-interest, to act selfishly, to use power that that regular human beings don't have to provide for himself. At a later time, when Satan was tempting Jesus, He used a different physical avenue. This time he used the avenue of hunger to try to get Jesus to doubt God. So the real temptation wasn't hunger, it was doubting God. And later he used the avenue of physical pain 
when he was being beaten and crucified, to try to induce Jesus to doubt his father and doubt himself and doubt his mission and act to save himself. So the physical senses and experiences are avenues to get us to perhaps to tempt us, but not simply to tempt us to eat food, to tempt us to doubt God. So in the wilderness, Jesus quotes scripture about life not being found in physical food, but true life, eternal life, is found only in harmony with God. The point Jesus is making is, don't fear the one who can harm the body, but the one who can destroy the soul, which he said later in Matthew 10, 28. Jesus is saying that this mortal body is not ultimately what matters, because this mortal body is already defective. It's got gene mutations. It's already slowly dying and decaying. This mortal body is not where you're going to find life by simply giving food to the mortal body. Where you're going to find life is connecting with God, who is the source of eternal life, and having your heart and mind renewed. That's where life is found. Why does Jesus quote scripture here? Think that through. Why does Jesus quote scripture here? Remember, at a later time in his life, Peter is used to tempt Jesus, and Jesus does not quote scripture. He just says, get me, get thee behind me, Satan. He confronts and just shuts Peter right down. This is important to understand, because the lesson wants to suggest that Jesus' method here is the single and sole method to be used. Whenever you're tempted, you need to have a scripture to quote. And let's be clear, quoting scripture is one of God's tools that he has given us to help protect us. So we should put the scriptures in our heart. We should understand them. We should understand the meaning of them. But the scripture quotation is not some magical um, incantation that we can cite that results in some magical energy being dispersed in some way. The purpose of the quoting the scripture is to reinforce truth in our hearts and minds. It's really the truth in our hearts and minds that exposes the lies and keeps us from being tricked by the liar. So quoting scripture can be helpful. And let's talk about the other methods, though, that Jesus used to resist temptation. One, he quotes scripture, which is really reciting the truth. But two, he talked to his father. Do you remember in Gethsemane, he was being tempted ravagously, and what did he do there? He didn't quote scripture. He got on his knees and he talked with his father. The time about Peter, he just confronted it with truth time when he's being tempted by the high priest and Pilate, he simply remains silent. He doesn't interact. He doesn't respond. At another time, when he's on the cross, being tempted by the jeering mobs and crowds and the physical, uh, what does he do? He exercises his ability to love. Rather than focusing on how he's being treated, he looks outward and he says to John, this is your mother, and to his mother, he says, this is your son. He's, he's, in other words, he's looking to care and making sure his mother is cared for, an act of love and exercising love resists and diminishes his temptation. He exercises trust in his father on the cross. Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. This is another way he resists, by trusting his father. And he also resists by understanding his mission, understanding his purpose, understanding what's actually happening, which is another way of saying truth, but he understood the context. And so when Peter whips out a sword and whacks off an ear, Jesus not only tells him to put it away, Jesus says, do you not think I could call my father and he would at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But then how would the scripture be fulfilled that's, that say it must happen in this way? 
Jesus understood what was happening. He understood truth. He understood his purpose. He understood what he had previously revealed in times past to his prophets who wrote down in scripture, the plan. He was on a mission to achieve an outcome. And the outcome required him to go through the cross to achieve the remedy that could provide salvation. Understanding that gave him insulation from other avenues to tempt him away from his mission. But in the desert, Jesus quoted scripture. Why did he use in this context, other places he's tempted, he's not quoting scripture, but in this context, he's quoting scripture. Well, with whom was Jesus dealing with, directly dealing with? He was dealing directly with Satan. And is Satan, at that time in human history, or at that time in history, is Satan open to truth? Can Satan be reasoned with? Is Satan actually interested in learning? Or is Satan hardened in lies and selfishness such that dialoguing with him doesn't have any impact on Satan's heart and mind? It only opens us up to have lies or distortions or temptations introduced into our thinking. So there's a lesson here. When dealing with intelligences that we in our judgment deem to be beyond reason, who are closed to truth, who are not interested in growing, we either remain silent, as Jesus did with the high priest and Pilate, or we quote, quote scripture. We don't engage a discussion. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 6, don't throw your pearls to the pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Jesus didn't say, don't throw your refuse, your trash, your garbage, your cursing, your hostility, your anger, your venom and disgust. He didn't say, don't throw that at them, even though we know we shouldn't do those things. He's saying, don't throw your pearls, your pearls of wisdom, your Bible pearls. Don't throw them to the pigs, those who are not interested in learning. Lest they not only trample the truth, but then they turn and attack you for speaking the truth. How many of you have experienced that? I know many of you have because you've emailed us, you've sent us messages about how in your local community you've tried to share truths, and what happens is people are not listening, they attack you, they deride you, they then throw you out of their, uh, say, you can't teach here, you can't hold office here anymore. So there's a place where we have to have the wisdom, and when, when do we share, and where do we share? We shake, and then if they don't want to hear it, we shake the dust off our feet and we move on to those who do. So sometimes it's not even appropriate to share our Bible pearls with people. It's best just to be silent and walk away. But in the context of being tempted by Satan, Scripture was quoted. And the lesson suggests that in this way, Jesus was affirming the authority of Scripture. It also says um, in, the, in the quote, um, he affirms the authority of Scripture uh, the word it's ulti- and its ultimate divine source. And that's the key I, I wanted to, to emphasize, the ultimate divine source. What, what makes Scripture authoritative? authoritative? Is it authoritative because it's Scripture? Is that why it's authoritative? The Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. That's how many approach, just the Bible, it's authoritative. You can't question, you can't think, just take it as it reads. Is that really what it is? Is the scripture the source of authority, or is God the source of authority? And scripture is a tool used by God to convey his authority. 
If an ambassador were to present to another nation their papers, their credentials, their documentation, their paperwork, is the source of authority the paperwork? Or is the source of authority the government who created the paperwork and shares that with these people? The, the, the paperwork is just a tool to convey the authority, right? The authority doesn't come from the scripture. The authority comes from God. So another way to say it is that what has, or ask the question is what has greater authority, the scripture or God? I think it's very clear it's God. What has greater authority, the Bible or Jesus? You see, in Jesus' day, they didn't like Jesus' reinterpretation of their understanding of the Bible. He kept reinterpreting it, kept reinterpreting it, telling, saying it as right. They didn't like it. In any official, what is the source of anyone's authority? Think that through. Where does the person's authority come from? This takes us back to the question of what law lens are you looking through? If you look through the human kingdoms, the human law lens, the lens of imperialism, then authority comes from the office. The office one holds, the position. And this is why people can abuse their authority. Because the authority does not come from anything natural. It comes from the office being held, the president, the CEO, the king, the queen, the pope, the police officer. Sadly, many in the church view authority this way and thus allow their pastors to rule with edicts. Pastor, conference president, bishops, popes, priests. But this is the authority of Satan's government the authority of imperialism, the authority of power over, not the authority of God's government. It doesn't work this way. And we'll talk about authority of God's government. we got a question. Yes, it's from Maria. She said, Jesus had unadulterated scripture. Do we even have scripture that's not tainted with the human law view? He had an unadulterated scripture. So that's an interesting question. And I would say, as we translate the Bible... From the original languages, there is the concern that uh, the translators can introduce um, their biases into the translation, even though they're trying to translate as honestly as possible. And this is where a lot of legal language comes into the translations, because there's assumptions of how law works in the minds of the translators. And so there is that aspect there. I do believe, though, that uh, when you understand design law, you can read the scriptures and still see the truths there. Um, but that's a really good question. So where does authority come from? Well, in human human governments and systems, it's from the actual um, position or office. And But in God's government, that's not where his authority comes from. His authority comes from the truth, from design law. Now, I just want to mention how do we as Christians deal with the church and church leaders or God's anointed, as some will say. I had it said to me one time, well, the pastor's the Lord's anointed. You have no right to question him. Because they were using the human law model that he is an authority and I have to submit to his authority. Consider David and King Saul. King Saul was the Lord's anointed. David refused to lift a hand to harm him. He wouldn't attack him. He wouldn't kill him. But he also didn't follow him. He did not believe him. He did not trust him. He did not 
uh, allow him to direct the course that David was on. David followed the Lord. So my view is that we are not to follow church leaders who are not following the Lord. We have to follow the Lord. We give respect to the office of church leader, but we don't allow them to dictate our beliefs, our actions, or our conduct. We must be true to the Lord. This is why the reformers reformed the uh, sought to reform their church. Their church leaders rejected that, and thus they moved on because they had to follow their conscience. Likewise, today, in love, if we have a church leader who is not following the Lord, we go to that church leader and try to help that church leader get back on the path the Lord would have them on. But sometimes that doesn't happen. We don't submit to a path that we believe the Lord is not leading. We have to follow as the Lord dictates. So, when we view things under design law, though, where does actual true authority originate or arise or come from? Regardless of their office, it comes from the truth itself. Truth is authoritative, regardless of the office. And since God is the source of all truth, and he only speaks truth, God is always authoritative. But not merely because of his office, but because he of his character and his truthfulness. This is an important uh this is important as time unfolds. For instance, if an angel of light were to come from heaven with the authority of office, but doesn't speak the truth, should we believe him or should we reject it? Remember, this is what Jesus was facing in the wilderness we're talking about. An angel was purporting to be from heaven. He even quoted scripture. Should he surrender to the authority of a heavenly agent? Quoting scripture? No. He should understand the truth and say, the truth is what I follow. Because we believe that Satan will one day impersonate Christ and quote scripture and perform miracles. Many will believe him because they have the worldly view of authority. And he's the one in office that we follow. This is not God's design. What about trusting the Bible verses? The Bible has authority, and they've got a Bible verse. Well, people can use the Bible to create lies. The angel of light was using Scripture to try and deceive Jesus. So the Bible is authoritative because it communicates truth. But is the Bible the only source of truth? No. There are truths of God's kingdom from other sources, such as nature, science, life experiences, Um In Bible times, there were prophets of God who spoke. Jonah went to Nineveh, and he didn't take a scripture for them to read, and he didn't quote scripture to them. He spoke words of truth to them. God can have his agents today speak words of truth into people's lives. Truth is still authoritative. If we look at the three temptations of Christ, what were they all focused upon? All three temptations in the wilderness were focused upon Jesus distrusting his father and acting in self-interest. This was the, this was the root of the, of the temptations. Now I want you to know something very else important about the story of what was happening to Jesus in the wilderness is quite profound of the plan of salvation. James writes in James 1 that no one should say God is tempting me for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. And Jesus, when he was showing his disciples how to pray, said that we should pray for the Lord to lead us not into temptation. This was the prayer. God, lead us not. Lead us away from temptation. Yet, as we look at what's happening here, the scripture says in Matthew 4.1, 
that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. God doesn't tempt anyone, James says. We are to pray that the Lord not lead us into temptation. God doesn't lead us down paths. But in this case, the Spirit of God led Jesus in the temple into the desert to be tempted. Why? Jesus became incarnate. He became human for a purpose, to accomplish a mission, to cause a specific outcome, to achieve a goal. And that goal was to expose Satan as a liar and fraud and the source of death. And as a human being, overcome temptation, eradicate the fear, the selfishness, the survival drive, and restore God's original design of love in the humanity that he assumed, thus curing the condition. Thus he had to go out and face him as our champion in order to be tempted, in order to overcome them as a human being, and destroy, as it says in Timothy, he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. That was he had to do. That's why he had to do this to accomplish his mission and provide the remedy and open the way to salvation for all who would trust him. So Jesus had a mission that was different than any other human being since Adam has fallen. We will never have to face Satan alone. We'll never have to deal with a temptation alone. We'll never have to fight a battle in our own strength. For those who who want it, you will always have the Holy Spirit providing you. And not just the Holy Spirit, angels would be on the scene to help you. You never have to fight a battle of temptation alone. Monday's lesson, the lesson asks us to read Matthew 5, 17 through 20. And it says, it's from the Good News Translation, Do not think that I have come to do away with the law of Moses and the teachings of the prophets. I have not come to do away with them, but to make their teachings come true. Remember that as long as heaven and earth last, not the least point or the smallest detail of the law will be done away with, not until the end of all things. So then, whoever disobeys even the least important of the commandments and and teaches others to do the same will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. On the other hand, Whoever obeys the law and teaches others to do the same will be great in the kingdom of heaven. I tell you then that you will be a, you will I tell you then that you will be able to enter the kingdom of heaven only if you are more faithful than the teachers of the law and the Pharisees in doing what God requires. We've all heard this before. What does it mean though? When you hear this, what law lens are you looking through? Through imposed law People hear this as God having made up rules and then keeps an exact account of rule keeping and there will be no charge, uh, excuse me, no change in any of God's rules. And if you're not teaching people the right rules, you'll be, you'll be the least. If, you're te- if you are teaching the right rules and people to keep them, you'll be great. Therefore, if you don't teach them, you're going to be in legal trouble. This leads to all kinds of disputes among Christians and Jews as to what are the right rules and what are the right ones to teach and what are the right ones to keep. A very sad state of affairs that has led to great abuse amongst people on earth through the years. Through design law, it is very simple. Life as God designed it would not exist if even the slightest change in God's design laws were made. The universe would cease as we know it. 
Thus, Christ did not come to change the perfect laws of God that life is built and exists upon, but to do that which the law requires, to live in harmony with God's design law and take mankind, humanity that he assumed, and restore it to that harmony. In her book, Finding Truth, Nancy Piercy describes this reality in the following. The origin of the universe has given rise to a puzzle known as the fine-tuning problem. The fundamental physical constants of the universe are exquisitely balanced, as though on a knife's edge to sustain life. Things like the force of gravity, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, the electromagnetic force, the ratio of the mass of a proton and electron, and many other factors have just the right value needed to make life possible. These are all God's design laws, folks. If any of these critical numbers were changed even slightly, the universe could not sustain life, could not sustain any form of life. For example, if the strength of gravity were smaller or larger than it current, its current value by only one part in 10 to the 60th power. So that's a 10 or a 1 with 60 zeros behind it. One part with 10 to, to the 60th power. The universe would be uninhabitable. Jesus is not speaking of rules here, like the legalists and the lawyers want you to think, but informing people of the creator God and the reality of how God built his universe, design law. Not one jot or tittle, not one little bit of the law will change unless life passes away. And so I will read those same verses, Matthew 5, 17 to 20, through the, from the remedy. And don't think that I have come to destroy what the Old Testament Torah and prophets taught about God and his methods. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill them. Here is the simple truth. Heaven and earth would disappear if even the slightest change were made to God's design protocol for life, what you call his law. I am not here to destroy the law, but to accomplish everything it requires. Anyone who violates God's design law and teaches others to do so is out of harmony with heaven. But anyone who practices God's methods, law, and teaches others to do so is in harmony with the kingdom of heaven. I tell you plainly, if your characters are not renewed with righteousness surpassing that of the Pharisees and lawyers, it simply won't be possible for you to enter the kingdom of heavenly love. The last sentence in the first paragraph reads, Jesus taught that a mere intellectual knowledge of the Bible and its teachings was not sufficient for knowing the truth, and more important, for knowing the Lord, who is that truth. This is quite right. The lesson's right on. It's a very important concept to understand. Professors and theologians may have an intellectual knowledge of the Bible, such as the languages and be language experts, But if they don't understand the great controversy, if they don't understand God's design laws, if they don't understand the nature and character of sin, then even though they understand the languages, because they're experts in the languages, when they translate, they don't necessarily get the meaning right, because they don't understand the larger realities. Matthew 22, 34 through 40. The lesson points us. It says, here that Jesus, uh, this is, uh, we're going to read this from the NIV. 
Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Then, let's read uh, the second paragraph. In this statement to the lawyer, Jesus summarizes the Ten Commandments giving, given to Moses 1,500 years earlier. It should be recognized how how Jesus focuses on the Old Testament law and elevates it to the highest level. Many Christians incorrectly have concluded that here a new commandment is given, and thus somehow the Old Testament law is now replaced by the New Testament gospel. But the fact is that what Jesus is teaching is based on the Old Testament law. Christ has unveiled and revealed the law more fully so that on these two commandments, summarizing the Ten Commandments, the first four of which focus on human-divine relationship and the second six on which focus on the human-interpersonal relationships, depends depend all the law and the prophets. In this way, Jesus also uplifts the entire Old Testament when he says the law and the prophets, for this is a shorthand way of referring to the law, prophets, and writings of all three divisions of the Old Testament. What is Jesus teaching here when he quotes this? Is he elevating a system of rules, of imperialism, of teaching that the right understanding of the Old Testament is that God's law is the design law of love and everything there, if rightly understood, is understood as design law? The principles of love? As we think of the different forms and expressions of of the law, Which is the greatest original? The Ten Commandments or Jesus' description of love for God and each other? Which is the great original? In other words, which law came first and what law was added? Some people, and I've had this discussion with many, uh, are insistent that the Ten Commandments are an eternal law. The, The Ten Commandments are an eternal law. Eve said he was referring to the design law, not specifically the Ten Commandments. Design law that existed, design law that existed always, not just beginning at Sinai. Great. I agree completely. So let's, let's unpack that. How do we know? How do you deal with somebody who is insistent? No, the Ten Commandments, they're eternal. They're God's law. They're always in existence. If there were no Ten Commandments, then there would have been no sin in heaven because we know Lucifer's sin. So the Ten Commandments had to be there. This is kind of the attitude that you will get. As we think through the different forms and expressions of God's law, Which is the great original, the Ten Commandments or Jesus' description of love for God and love for each other? So think that through. Did the angels in heaven need a law to honor their mother and father, to not commit adultery, that sins would pass down through the generations? In fact, in Eden, did Adam and Eve need a law that sins would pass down through the generations? If they would have stayed faithful, would they have had sins passing down the generations? Wow, that's quite profound to consider. When was the Sabbath created? When this world was created, and according to Job 38, the angels in heaven were singing together for joy, meaning that there was a law in existence prior to the creation of this earth, but it didn't contain a Sabbath. The Sabbath was made later. Remember, Jesus himself said that the Sabbath was made 
for man, not man for the Sabbath. One of the founders of the SDA church wrote the following in Story of Redemption, page 145. The law of God existed before man was created. The angels were governed by it. Satan fell because he transgressed the principles of God's government. Pause right there. What does that mean? He transgressed the principles of God's government. That he broke a rule or he stepped out of harmony with the protocols upon which God built life to exist. Continuing with the quote. After Adam and Eve were created, God made known to them his law. It was not then written, but was rehearsed to them by Jehovah. The Sabbath of the fourth commandment was instituted in Eden. What does instituted mean? The Sabbath didn't exist before it was instituted. It was instituted in Eden. It was created. Yet God's law did exist. So what does that mean about the Ten Commandments? Would it mean that the law of God didn't exist in the form of the Ten Commandments at that time in history, and it was added later? After God had, continue with the quote, after God made the world and created man upon it, he made the Sabbath for man. After Adam's sin and fall, nothing was taken from the law of God. The principles of the... The principles of the Ten Commandments existed before the fall and were of a character suited to the condition of a holy order of beings. After the fall, the principles of those precepts were not changed, but additional precepts were given to meet man in his fallen state. Think that through. What would that mean? If the law of God had not been transgressed, this continuing with the quote, if the law of God had not been transgressed, there never would have been death and there would have been no need of additional precepts to suit man's fallen condition. What would this mean, Such uh, to suit man's fallen condition? Would that mean the, the writing about the sins passing down three and four generations? Well, that would suit man's fallen condition. How about not commit adultery? Don't bear false witness. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Do you think in a perfect sinless world with holy beings who only love others, you actually have to post a law for them not to murder each other? No, the entire precept, the entire Ten Commandments were written in a way to meet man's fallen condition. They did not exist prior to that in this form. Here's one other quote, same author, for one Bible commentary, page 1104. The law of God existed before the creation of man, or else Adam could not have sinned. After the transgression of Adam, the principles of the law were not changed, but were definitely arranged and expressed to meet man in his fallen condition. So the Ten Commandments didn't exist in heaven or in Eden, but God's eternal law did. If it didn't exist in this form, what kind of a form do you think the law existed in in heaven? Well, this is an interesting other quote from a book, Thoughts on the, uh, from the Mounts of Blessing, Thought of the Mounts of Blessing, page 109. See if, you, see if this gives insight, if you agree. But in heaven, service is not rendered in the spirit of legality. Oh boy, there's a whole bunch of legal-keeping Christians that are in trouble because they think the whole thing is legal. They think there's a legal thing going on in heaven right now in a sanctuary. Hmm. But in heaven, the service is not rendered in the spirit of legality. When Satan rebelled against the law of Jehovah, the thought that there was a law came to the angels as almost an awakening to something unthought of. 
Pause with that and think through that. What does it mean? What kind of law can be in force and we expect people, intelligences, to abide by it, but they don't even know it exists? Natural. Design law. That's how reality works. Consider Isaac Newton discovering the law of gravity and coming home and telling all his friends and family about the law of gravity he discovered, and he gives an equation for it. Can't you see them going, huh, gravity? There's a law about that? Never thought about that. That's new. I just thought that's how things worked. This is how God's laws work. They're just the way things work. Now, if you struggle with this idea the Ten Commandments were not in existence in the universe before Sinai, consider Isaac Newton's laws of motion. First law, an object at rest remains at rest, and an object in motion continues at a constant velocity unless acted upon by an external force. Second law, the sum external force of an object is equal to the mass of that object multiplied by its acceleration. So how big an object is, how fast it's moving, that will give you the the force that it will impact something with. Third law. When one body exerts a force on a second body, the second body simultaneously exerts a force equal in magnitude and opposite in direction of the first body. Now, let's think about these laws and answer a few questions. Are they real? Do they apply to our lives? Do they apply to everyone or only those who hear about them and choose to believe in them? Are they rules we must obey or descriptions of how reality is built to function? When did these laws go into effect? When Isaac Newton wrote them down or were they in effect before he wrote them down? If Newton had not written them down, would that mean these laws would not exist and thus would not be in effect? How about this? If we decide in a committee to change the wording of the first law to read as follows, an object at rest remains at rest unless it receives permission from the proper church committee to move. Does that actually change anything in reality? Do you understand why we cannot change God's laws? In other words, do you realize human beings and church committees can't change any of God's laws because that's how reality works? And the laws, are they imposed or are they designed? Natural laws. Question. Yes, it's for Maria. What form will it exist in heaven after it's all done? Uh, What we're describing. It is It is simply the same as the angels had before. We will all be back to operating with a law written in the heart and mind, the protocols upon which life is built. It will be natural for us to live in that way because that's how God's constructed life. And we'll be healed from the infection that causes us to act differently. So it will be design law. Um, what might there be a museum in heaven with, uh, uh, you know, a tablets of stone that r- have written on them, uh, the Ten Commandments that were constructed for human beings in their sinful state? Might there be a museum there for us to go and visit and look at and see what transpired on earth? That's perhaps true, but that will not be the law that we're abiding by. There will be no sins passing down three and four generations in heaven. So the law will be the the protocols of life, which we will all understand, embrace, and live by. So this goes to the the, the Ten Commandments are like Newton's laws, and were not in existence in written form 
until after human beings sinned and God took the protocols of love and he distilled them down in a specific structure to meet humankind in their fallen state. But in heaven, they exist as truth, love, freedom. This goes to the heart of a problem in Christianity. Do we understand God's laws as principles, design parameters, or as rules? Those at level four and below of moral development are stuck in the rules, the list, the, the, the diagnostic instrument of the commandments to help reveal the sickness, and get upset if one suggests that the Ten Commandments have not always been in existence. I've been called some ugly things by Christians because of this. In fact, it's, it's led to quite some hostility against our ministry, and people accuse me of Jennings wants to do away with God's law. Those of you who follow us know that when you understand design law, you elevate the law to a magnitude of, of the infinite God and standards originating in his character. There's no changing. There's no variableness. There's no turning. There is no adjusting. It is just constant. And we elevate that law to a, to a position. But when you have a list of rules that are, that are just rules, those are always amenable to change. So those who actually make the argument indict themselves. So Jesus sustained, supported, and promoted God's law, but always Jesus promoted design law, never imperialism. Tuesday's lesson, first paragraph, says, After the death of Christ, his followers were confused and in doubt. How could this have happened? What did it mean? In this this chapter, which is uh, chapter 24 of Luke, we see that Jesus appears to them twice first to the two who were on the road to Emmaus, and then to the others later. On two separate occasions, Jesus explains how all has been fulfilled from the Old Testament prophecies. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And what is the point of pointing this out. Well, I think they want us to understand that Jesus didn't just show up and claim to be the Messiah, that this was, uh, there are many um, indicators that God foretold his spokespersons that the Messiah would achieve and accomplish and fulfill. And he was assuring them that, in fact, he was the fulfillment, uh, was the Messiah that was promised all the way back in Eden. But uh, if if you're get, gaining the idea that Scripture is the single and sole method of instruction and teaching, then we must look a little deeper and see if that assumption or premise is true. When Jesus was teaching the people, what was his primary method? Did he do scriptural exegesis while teaching them? Did Jesus primarily use scripture and quote it to them at all? According to Matthew 13, 34, this is a quote from the NIV, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using parables. Does this undermine the reality that Jesus held Scripture to be God's word and used Scripture as a source of truth? Absolutely not. He absolutely held Scripture as a source of truth. But it points out that you can teach God's truth through other mechanisms and means. It exposes the idea that godly preaching is exclusively biblical exegesis. You can have godly, even, quote, Bible teaching. In other words, you're pattering it after Jesus found in the Bible by teaching truths found in nature, by teaching parables. Consider this quotation out of a, a, a special testimonies on education, page 67. 
The same principle appears in his teaching, talking about Christ. The unknown was illustrated by the known. Jesus taught by illustrations and parables drawn from nature and from the familiar events of everyday life. The inspired record says, All these things spake him Jesus unto the multitudes in parables, and without parables spake he not unto them. In this way, he associated natural things with spiritual, linking the things of nature and the life experience of his hearers with the sublime spiritual truths of the written word. Do you see the integrative evidence-based approach here? Scripture is being linked with nature and life experiences. What danger do we face when we open ourselves to, what dangers do we face or open ourselves to when we insist that spiritual truth is found exclusively and only in Scripture, divorced from nature and life experiences. This is why there are so many Christian denominations, 30, 40,000 different groups arguing amongst themselves, because when we divorce Scripture from reality, is the exact opposite of what Jesus was doing. He was tying their Scripture to nature and to life experiences, showing that God is the God of reality. God is the God of creation. God is the God who built life. And thus, his truths always will harmonize with His cre- how he created things to operate. Wednesday's lesson. first paragraph reads, Jesus taught that the Bible is the word of God in the sense that what it says is synonymous with what God says. Its origin is found in God and therefore contains ultimate authority for every aspect of life. God worked through history to reveal his will to humanity through the Bible. You know, I thought there was some quite in, 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 ex, exciting and perhaps extreme claims here. Maybe they could be misunderstood. Maybe they have meanings that are quite accurate. But do you agree that when you read the Bible, it is the same as God saying something to you? Maybe I misunderstood that. Jesus taught that the Bible is the word of God in the sense that what it says is synonymous with what God says. Hmm. Maybe to a degree... I think it's true that from the Bible we can we can absolutely receive communication from God. There's no question about that. The Bible is one of God's methods of communicating his thoughts, his truths, ideas to us. No question about that. So yes, to the degree that we're receiving Bible truth, we're receiving truth from God, so God can be speaking to us. I agree with that. But does that mean that when we read the Bible truth, it's the same as God actually speaking to us? We should not understand this statement as as reading the Bible text and taking it literally is God speaking to us a directive from heaven. You shouldn't read the Bible and think, oh, God is speaking a directive to me from heaven. That's God speaking to me. For instance, if you read, if your hand offend thee, cut it off, and what you are going to do, do it quickly. If you read those two verses, you should not hear that as God is speaking to me. That's psychosis. And psychotic patients have been known to mutilate themselves because they say God has spoken to me directly from his word. We should not understand receiving truth from the Bible as the same experience as talking to with God as with a friend, as Adam and Eve did 
in Eden, as Moses did when the Bible says he spoke to God face to face as a man speaks to a friend, as Abraham did when Abraham challenged God over Sodom. Those are different experiences than reading the Bible. Are they not? Yeah. The Bible is a divine instrument to communicate God's truths to us, but it's still different than talking with God. One of the dangers of the idea of the Bible being God talking directly to us, or the, what the Bible says is what God says type of an approach, is it can lead us to use the Bible inappropriately, like quoting texts as proof texts and claiming, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. This is God. God said it because the Bible said it, without actually understanding the context, the meaning, the great controversy context, etc. Sometimes I've even had people use a Bible quote, and they'll quote it, And it was out of the book of Job, and when you look it up, it was either from Satan or it was from um, one of Job's friends that was uh, later told was speaking lies or falsehood. But they'll quote it as if that's true. They don't even understand who they're quoting. But it's from the Bible. What about the idea that the Bible contains ultimate authority for every aspect of life? Ultimate authority. What's the word ultimate mean? Absolute. Final, absolute, highest, no subsidiary, nothing superior to, or having authority over. Is that actually true? Is the Bible the ultimate authority, or is God the ultimate authority, because God is the infinite source of all truth, all reality, and is the basis for all life? I mean, the ultimate authority is not in the Bible. The ultimate authority is in God. I just was, maybe maybe I'm being a little nitpicky here, but I think there are concrete thinkers who take the Bible as the ultimate authority, and thus they become, it becomes bibliolatry. And what's bibliolatry? That the Bible becomes the idol that they worship. They're not worshiping God, they're worshiping the Bible. The Bible always becomes magical. I've seen people with magical Bibles. What do I mean by magical Bibles? Well, they always have the Bible in the dash of their car because they can't get in an accident as long as the Bible's there. In the last paragraph, the lesson notes that Jesus referred to many events in the Old Testament as historical realities. Creation, Adam and Eve and marriage, David and the showbread, Elisha and the prophets, Sodom, the flood. And based on Jesus' use of these events as historical realities, it gives confirmation or validity to the Bible being a trustworthy book. So the, the, the argument goes, Jesus used these events and he treated them as literal, so we should understand that they are literal because Jesus would not have taken them as literal if they weren't. I think that's a reasonable argument for all those who value Jesus. It has no weight for anybody who doesn't value Jesus. So if you're trying to say the Bible can be trusted because Jesus trusted it to people who don't believe in Jesus, that's really not going to be very effective to help them trust the Bible. But for those who do believe in Jesus and are questioning, well, should I believe in the flood or the creation? The fact that Jesus spoke of these things literally as real events, if they believe in Jesus, should give them great confidence. That's a really good argument for those who trust Jesus. The last sentence of the last paragraph referencing the flood reads the following. There is every indication that Jesus was referring to the mighty act of God's judgment as a historical event. Speaking of the flood, God's judgment. When you hear such words, what do you hear? What law lens are you hearing or listening or reading through? If through the Satan's lie that God's law functions like human law, then judgment is heard as a judicial 
the judge is examining good and bad behavior, law-breaking, and the judge is rendering a sentence, conviction, and the judge is handing out a penalty. Thus, God is judging the world as being sinful and is going to then punish them with a flood to destroy them. This is the judicial human view. I'm going to tell you, it's completely fraudulent. It's a complete lie. It's based on the assumption with, or the lie that God's law works like Satan's law. So how do we understand this under design law? Judgment is still made, but it's made through the understanding of what's happening in the hearts and minds of people. Thus, it would be more accurately called a diagnosis. God diagnoses the actual condition and the situation and what's transpiring, and then God makes a judgment about what is most therapeutic action to take in order to keep the plan of salvation moving forward and to save people. So in regard to the flood, it was a mighty judgment on God's part, accurately diagnosing the hardness of the hearts of the people and making a judgment of what was going to be most therapeutic action in order to save humankind. So the first point to understand here is to rightly understand and comprehend the reality of the wages of sin, which is eternal non-existence, annihilation, what, what the Bible calls second death. That's the penalty for sin. The death that Lazarus died and was raised from, the death that Moses died and was raised from, that is not the penalty of sin. That's a sleep death. And every human being is raised in a resurrection. Understanding that, then this, we understand that's not punishment for sin because the flood merely put people into the sleep death, which is not the punishment for sin. Two, even those who hold to the judicial view of things that God's punishing, ask them the question, did the flood come before or after the judgment? Does God inflict punishment before people are actually judged? Okay, therefore, this isn't the punishment, the eternal punishment for sin, because the judgment hasn't happened yet. So it serves another purpose. There's another reason for the flood, and it wasn't judicial. It wasn't the punishment for sin. What was it for? It was for keeping the plan of salvation in effect. As When Adam sinned, the human race found itself in a terminal condition, and the entire species would be eternally lost unless Jesus comes. And thus in Genesis 3, a Messiah is promised. And the serpent begins to go to war, begins to war against the plan of salvation. And the whole Old Testament story is a story of God's agencies working to bring about the plan of salvation Centering on the coming Messiah. The whole thing is centered on the coming Messiah. And Satan's agency is working to obstruct it. That's the whole Old Testament context. Messiah's coming. Messiah's coming. God has a people who are supposed to be lights to the world, priests to announce and prepare the way for the Messiah. Satan is working to corrupt them, to get them to accept Baal worship and the construct of God who is, a, who is a punisher who needs to be appeased and to, and to destroy their hearts and minds so there'll be no avenue. But, of course, Jesus comes and and if Satan can get at the time of the flood every human heart to harden against God, then he succeeds. There is no one that baby Jesus can be born to. So God waits until there's only one righteous man left on the earth to the last possible moment, showing great patience, great mercy, and he acts not to punish sin, but to keep open avenue for Messiah to come. Further, God sent warnings through Noah to the people for 120 years. They ridiculed, they rejected the warnings. But what 
would a flood occurring over a period of time as the rains came down, as the fountains of water broke up, what would that allow? People would not be killed in an instant, vaporized as in Sodom. There's a period of time going by as the earth is broken up, as the floods come up, as the water rises. Would this not allow for the people who have been mocking for 120 years and making fun of Noah, would it not give them time to reflect and reconsider? Would the evidence of what was transpiring confirm that Noah was right? Would that give the people outside the ark an opportunity to repent? Whether they accept it or not is not the point. The point is, what kind of God do we serve? Do we serve a God who will give every possible opportunity, even if the opportunity to get them to see reality and make a change for eternity is a painful one and a frightening one? Will he do that for them? Think about the thief on the cross who had the opportunity to hear Christ and what was happening in Palestine and all the preaching that was going on, yet persistently rejected that and pursued a sinful life and ends up suffering crucifixion on the cross, leading toward death. He's going to die shortly. He knows it. The people at the flood, they're going to die. They know it. But in that situation, it gave him opportunity to reflect, and he repented, and he received eternal life. Even though his life on earth was done at that point, he will now have an eternal life. Did God give the people at the time of the flood, that same opportunity. Thus, the flood was not brought about only to keep the avenue of the Messiah. It allowed those who were on the earth an opportunity to repent. Further, what were the factors besides human sinfulness that contributed to an entire world hardening against God, except for one man, so quickly after Eden? What happens to sinful people when everything is given to them and they don't have to work for anything? What happens over time to people who are self-indulgent and lead hedonistic lifestyles? What happens if such people live hundreds of years? What happens when they influence generation after generation after generation because they live 900 years? Would altering the environment with the flood make it harder to survive Would that be a punishment for sin or rather a therapeutic intervention that would slow the corruption of human character? Having, Have you ever heard that idle hands are the devil's workshop? Useful labor is protective against temptation. The Eden-like conditions on the earth prior to the flood permitted more self-indulgence of the carnal nature and thus accelerated the corruption of the human character. The changes to the earth after the flood made it harder to put food on the table, thus increased the need of useful labor, which protected the people from further sinful decline. Further, the change in the earth resulted in shortening of the human lifespan from 900 to approximately 120 max years, which limited the amount of time a single individual could corrupt the the, um, subsequent generations. So when we see the truth of this, we see that God made an incredible judgment. He diagnosed accurately the hearts of people. He diagnosed that the plan of salvation would not go forward if the avenue was not kept open. He judged that he would give and take an act that would give everyone on earth an opportunity to see the truth and repent and have eternal life. And he judged that the lives of human beings need to be a little bit more difficult because they needed useful labor. And they needed to have their life shortened so that the ones who reject truth and corrupted themselves could not corrupt multiple generations down. What an act of mercy. What an act of love. God never compels. He never coerces. He only uses the method of truth, love, and liberty. But love does restrain evil in order to protect. And God has restrained evil in many places. Let us uh, go ahead and close with prayer. 
Our gracious Father in heaven, we do thank you so much. What an incredible God of truth and love and liberty that you are. We ask that you will continue to intervene, making your judgments known, that we can understand and discern the wisdom of your diagnoses, the wisdom of your therapeutic interventions and your plan of salvation. We ask that your spirit will be poured out and your angels will be sent to each and every one of us that we can be transformed and and healed and prepared and be effective in this world. And we ask that we use the circumstances in this world right now to turn hearts and minds to the big question about who they serve. We pray in your holy name. Amen.